All right, the No Water Methodists have put out another new podcast for you to listen to. It's the best part of your week. I'm so glad you get to meditate on meaningful things with this community of faith once again. If this is your first time listening, I'm so happy for you. I think everything this community does is pretty spot-on worthy. Uh, We reflect on the word well together. Over the last five weeks, previous weeks, we uh, covered... No, four weeks. We covered the five chapters of First Peter. Now we're going to start with Second Peter. You're going to hear what we talked about on this last Sunday, which was the first chapter of Second Peter, which talks about the importance of holiness, as pretty much every chapter does in the New Testament, but also uh, how it is that we know that the Bible is entirely reliable and what an authentically Christian approach to the Scriptures is. So a lot of people haven't heard this particular portion. They've heard all scripture is God-breathed and uh, good for correction and rebuke and encouragement. I just butchered that. Not a lot of people have heard this particular passage at the end of the message, so I hope you enjoy it. Um, Just housekeeping stuff. This upcoming Sunday will be an information session for the church membership because the following Sunday, we are taking a vote as the church membership as to whether or not this church is going to disaffiliate from the United Methodist Church denomination. Having sat in on the meetings from the church board, it's important that everybody know that this church, even if we leave the United Methodist Church, will continue to be Methodist, not just in culture, but in doctrine. Um, There is no future where this church happily leaves any Wesleyan denomination. Rather, um, those who are leading the charge out are fond of initiating a new covenant relationship with a body that has pretty much the same doctrine but does a better job enforcing it. So um, hopefully, uh, you know, if you're a member of the church, then you can come to worship this Sunday, uh, come to the information session afterwards. There will be soup and then uh, come to worship the following Sunday, a week from this Sunday, to, uh, if you are a member, vote on the future covenant affiliation of this church. So uh, I think that's all the housekeeping. I hope you enjoy spending time in Second Peter. Bless you. We'll see you. Welcome to the No Water Methodist Church Podcast, where we hope to encourage you in your spiritual journey so that you may be a blessing to your local church and to the world. Second Peter begins on page 1893 of your pew Bibles. First Peter we got done with last week was very concerned with holy living in the midst of persecution and being at peace with being persecuted even though we don't deserve it. Not resenting it, not growing bitter, not, not returning evil for evil, but just understanding that our way of life is being persecuted for the name of Jesus, even and especially when we live rightly. Second Peter, like the rest of the Bible, is very concerned with holy and righteous living. The, the undergirding argument of the Bible is that not only God is holy, 
but that we, made in God's image, should be holy as well. And the Bible was written down not just so we'd have this interesting history, but so that we would know what holiness looks like. Not just God's holiness in the heavenly realms, but our holiness here and now. And so the Bible, different books of the Bible come at it from different angles. Every book in the Bible is interested in showing us what the new birth looks like. When it says that you and I are a new creation in Christ, what does that mean? What does that look like? And that means we live differently than the people of the world. It means we feel differently than the people of the world. It means we think differently than the people of the world. All of our innermost parts are reformed by the Holy Spirit to be like God's. And so the Bible is written to help us to, to discern what is of God and what is not. And, and we need to exercise those powers of discernment. Here it's going to talk about knowledge in today's reading. The point of knowledge, there are lots of different kinds of knowledge. We need to have not just knowledge, we need to have discernment to know what is right knowledge and what is wrong, bad, worldly knowledge. We need to have wisdom, which is knowing how and when to use the knowledge that we have. I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to go on a little tirade here in a little bit, but let's, let's go ahead and get into the word. Because here's, here's the thing. Here's why I go on tirades sometimes. I think it's useful and helpful. I wouldn't do it if I didn't think it was useful and helpful. The thing is, the world is constantly lulling us to sleep, and it's my job to say, wake up. Wake up. Satan wants you to go to sleep, and part of you wants to stay asleep, but it's the pastor's job to say, wake up. Now is the day of salvation. That's what I'm doing, okay? And then I've, I've told you other things about my job. It's to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, right? I, y'all like that whenever I quoted that. There are other things where I, we have to acknowledge the world wants us asleep. The world is lulling us to sleep. It's trying to make us complacent with our sin. That's exactly where Satan wants us, the only loving thing to do. I would hope that if I went mute and all of a sudden somebody else had to get up here, I hope they would feel right in saying, wake up. That's what we're here to do. We're here to be truly awake, truly alive. And that when, you're, when you're truly awake and alive, when you're sober and alert, like we were talking about last week, then you see Jesus for who he is, you see your life for what it is, and you hunger and thirst for righteousness like you don't even care about water anymore. All right, 2 Peter chapter 1, written by Simon Peter, a, ser- a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. If we don't know who Peter is, we need to be reading our Bibles. He was uh, the leader of the 12, Jesus' apostles. To those who, through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. So just basic things about the Christian faith to remind ourselves. If we had to put in one word what it is that saves every single Christian, it is faith. Specifically the faith of Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ. But we have to be very clear, is the source of my faith my own discernment, my own understanding, my own wisdom, or is it a gift from God that I didn't earn and could never work for? It's grace. It's from God. My faith is not of me. It's of God. He gave it to me. That's why I have it. You can't earn it. You can't pay for it. That's why it's God's grace. He saves you despite your unworthiness. You can't earn it. Now, does that mean that there is nothing we can do to please God? No. Once we have faith, once we have died to self and we're alive in Christ, then we get to participate in our own salvation. But until that happens, we need that faith. Until we are given faith, we can't purchase it. You know, do you remember Simon Magus? If you don't, uh, Philip had gone to uh, Samaria 
This is after the Holy Spirit came down on Pentecost and Philip went to Samaria and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit's moving among people and the local magician is so impressed that he tries to pay money when Peter comes and he's, he's, the, the Holy Spirit is clearly powerful. He says, how much money do I have to give you so you can give me the power of this Holy Spirit? And Peter condemns him because it is not something that you can purchase or earn. It's something that God pours out on you. That's what faith is. And some people want to believe, you know, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus came. Surely our faith is not of the same caliber and quality as those original apostles. Here he says, to those through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ who have received a faith as precious as ours. The faith we have today is the exact same faith early disciples had. There is no qualitative difference whatsoever. And that means that God holds us to the same exact standard. He expects the same way of life that early disciples were able to lead. Verse 2, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of our Lord, of Jesus our Lord. So here's that introduction of that knowledge bit. Now, knowledge is something that tires people out. Now, we've lived, I'm going to get political for a second. You don't realize it's political. We live in a country that from the 1980s has been conditioning people not to like knowledge. People see it as a, a, a taxing thing to learn all these details and rules. I mean, have you noticed we live in a country with laws that are written down and most people don't even know what they are? Isn't that weird? We have a Bible that's written down. People don't know what's in there. They can't be bothered to learn. It's because we have been conditioned not to enjoy learning unless Bert and Ernie are doing it, and you can get just a bite-sized snapshot of it. You know, We know who Bert and Ernie are. That's what Sesame Street came with good intentions. It resulted in kids that can't learn unless you entertain them. People have forgotten how to learn, love learning, love knowledge for knowledge's sake. We've known for decades that when you give someone a gold star for doing well on a test, they no longer enjoy the process of learning. They want to do it for that gold star. And just like any narcotic, your high doesn't get as high the more you get it. Children have to learn and adults have to learn to love knowledge for knowledge's sake. Otherwise, they're going to hate learning. Knowledge about God is innately interesting and rewarding. And yet we have a generation of supposed Christians in this country that get so taxed by being asked to understand Christian doctrine. It makes no sense. We as Christians, the expectation is that we want to know the God that we love, that died for us. And when we find it so taxing to read his word, to learn his doctrine, something is wrong. Amen? So here it's expecting for us to seek and desire that knowledge. And you know... You ever heard that phrase, here's my tirade for today? You've been on a tear the whole time, Jeffrey. <laughs> Anybody ever heard that saying, the devil is in the details? I never cared about that saying until recently. You know, I heard uh, a guy named Jordan Peterson. He's not a Christian, by the way, so I don't care if you listen to him. But he does this great discourse on how profound that statement is. The devil is in the details because the thing is, Jesus, one of the things he condemned the Pharisees for was they would strain out a gnat and swallow a camel, right? And the notion is that some people have an agenda. They just have their things they like to hear, the things they want to believe, and they're not discerning about all the things that go into that. Christians have been given God's holy word and a wonderful heritage and history of Christian doctrine, and yet we don't want to learn those things because we find them taxing. But what we're told is, in Hebrews, the word of God is living and active, sharper 
than any two-edged sword, separating bone from marrow, soul from spirit. The notion is that God's holy word is a surgical scalpel. It is doing very exact work in our spirits, and we have to be able to let the Holy Spirit show us what is good from what is evil, and then we need to have the patience to allow the Holy Spirit to root those things out, take those bad things from us, and help good things to grow. And if we start going, ah, what's with all these rules, all these doctrines, do I, I just need to love Jesus, right? As soon as you're doing that, you're showing that you don't have much love for Jesus. I love my wife, and that means that when I wake up first thing in the morning, I know that she likes me working in the kitchen. If she comes in and I'm doing dishes or preparing breakfast or I'm cleaning up from the mess before, she's happy with me. But if she comes in and I'm looking at my phone and doing something, she doesn't say anything, but she's a bit disappointed already. And I know how to do the different things that she likes. I know what to do with my clothes. You know, there are all things around. You know what I'm talking about. If you've shared a household with people, you know all their picadillos. And you can get resentful and go, oh, I have to do all these things. Or you can just say, I love them, and so I do all the things. And that's what your relationship with God is like. He has told you how to do all the things and what things not to do. And how we do the things matters. Y'all remember what Moses did? that made it so he could not enter into the promised land. God told him to go and strike this rock in the presence of Israel, and water would come out of it. And he goes, and he goes, and he strikes the rock, but then he also says something. And what he says is good, but God did not ask him to say something. And so because Moses went against the very specific instructions of God, God said, you know what, I'm not going to let you enter in. And we look on that and go, God is such a, a mean guy. But the thing is, God could not be any more clear with us about what he wants, what he expects. And when we think that we can play fast and loose with his word, then it doesn't matter how much knowledge we have. If we don't have that discernment, we, we jettison the salvation we have in him. We have a very exact God. Hey, Susanna, if there's any more distraction, I'm going to have you move, okay? I love you, but we can't be doing that. That's as good as, okay, that's end of tirade. All right, we're in verse 4 now. Uh, Through these things, his glory and goodness, it was talking about it in verse 3, he has given us his very great and precious promises. What promises is it talking about here? Has God given us promises? Well, how do we know about these promises? Where, where are those written down? Bible, okay. So the biblical text gives us these promises that are sure and worthy of our trust. So that through them... You may participate in the divine nature. What does that mean? To participate in the divine nature. What, what does divine mean? Godly, of God, like the heavenly realms. Participate means join in, right? Be active in. Participate in the divine nature. Nature would be the essence of something. Can you and I participate in God's essence? Zachary's sitting right up here going, yeah. I mean, it couldn't be any more clear. Yes, holiness. That's what the word, holiness, godliness, sanctification. The purpose of our lives is to be holy as God is holy, as it says in Deuteronomy. Or as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Do you remember him saying that? And people go through that and go, oh, surely he doesn't mean that. Surely. Well, here it is again from Peter. The purpose of life is to participate in the divine nature. We live in a world 
of materialists who go, ah, it's just money. Oh, it's just bodies. Oh, it's just air floating around. And we say, no, everything is connected to God. And rather than bucking that or denying that, we participate in God's nature in the world. We are called to be born again, dead to our old selves, dead to the flesh, alive in the spirit. That's the purpose of life. Not to give in to sin, not to go, oh, it's just part of life. Oh, it's just the way it's always been. No, that old me died and Christ is alive in me today now. I am holy. What's the word for a holy person? Saint. I am a saint. You and me are supposed to be saints. That's the whole purpose of what we're doing here. I'm going to read that whole sentence again. So that, no, just this clause. So that through them these promises, you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped, you hear that past tense, you've already escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. That's what Christ did in you. He liberated you from your sin. So then you're not enslaved to sin anymore. If sin persists in your life, it's because you're choosing it. Might not feel like a choice, but the power of sin has been removed from your life. That's how powerful Christ's blood is. And so there's, there's a reformation period. Sin has been conquered. When it remains, we're allowing the Holy Spirit to take it from us unless we start doing this really evil thing in our brains, which most everybody does, which is, eh, I was born this way. These sins are part of me. God's not going to take them from me. Beware of the voice of the evil one. And as James reminds us, it's not just the devil that condemns us. We condemn ourselves. We don't need any help from Satan sometimes. Verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith. We've already talked about faith, where it comes from. Add to it. You're not supposed to just sit on it. Add to it goodness. How do you know what goodness is? Look at God. We get the word good from the word God. Add to it goodness. And add to goodness, knowledge. There's that knowledge word again. Add to knowledge, self-control. That's something our culture is weak on. We have a hedonistic culture that likes giving in to our desires. Self-control is identifying self. Self wants to do bad things. Don't do that, self. Anybody have that little voice in your head going, oh, I probably shouldn't do that. That's, that's sin. You know, listen to that voice. That's a good voice. Self-control. Add to self-control perseverance. That means you keep going even when you're tired, right? And add to perseverance, godliness. Okay, we've talked about that. And add to godliness, mutual affection. And add to mutual affection, love. Okay, so John Wesley, I was reading his notes on this this morning. He says, each of these naturally flows out of what came before, and it naturally perfects what came before. So it forms this huge, if you want to imagine a, a metaphor, uh, Christ is a foundation. And anytime you you have a foundation, you're building a structure on top of it. So just imagine a multi-story building where you have at the bottom faith in Christ Jesus and then you're adding on a new level and on a new level. And as you're adding on these levels, you're perfecting what came before. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life. Verse 8, for if you possess, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, does that sound good? It'll keep us from being ineffective and unproductive? Doesn't sound good to you. You like being ineffective and unproductive, huh? 
let's be honest, some days we like just turning on the TV and doing nothing, don't we? Life is not for doing nothing. Life is for producing something. God created man and woman, Adam and Eve, in the garden to work it. We are beasts of burden, you and I, and we only find ourselves right with God when we are producing and laboring for him. But we're raised in a lazy generation, and that's something that every generation has struggled with. That's why Proverbs has that whole thing about, look to the ant, you lazy bones. You know, it's always been an enemy of faith. We need to be active and productive in our faith. And when you hear that voice go, what's the least I need to do to get into heaven? That's when you're dead already. Because life in Christ Jesus is not about phoning it in and doing the bare minimum. Life in Christ Jesus is about returning the love that you've already received from him joyfully, eagerly, Six days a week laboring for your Lord. One day a week resting in your Lord. That's the biblical pattern. As soon as we're unproductive and lazy, that's when we know something's off. Once again, this is the blueprint that we're looking at to hold against ourselves. Am I resenting being productive and effective for God? Well, something's wrong. Am I joyfully working for my Lord? Okay, at least that's right. Verse 9, but whoever does not have them... What's them? It's this list of virtues that he listed off a second. Whoever doesn't have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. So what do we do with people who call themselves Christians, and yet they're not really producing anything for Christ? They're not growing in these virtues. They're not building on the foundation of Christ. What's to be said about them? Peter himself right here says they have once again let the arthritis take over. They have once again let their sinuses clog up. They have once again let, let their eyes falter and not work anymore. God woke them up, he cleared them out, and yet they let themselves get clogged up again. Now, is that the end of the story for them? No, I don't think so. I think that's what this holy meal back here is for. I think it's for renewing us, opening us up back. And I think that's what the word of God is structured to do. It's to wake us up, right? But if but if the word doesn't wake you up, if this meal doesn't wake you up, yes, you're going to stay asleep, unproductive, dead in your sins. Doesn't matter that you got cleansed before you chose to be clogged up again. The end. Verse 10, therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. So have you been called and elected? Show it. Be glad to show it. Yeah, I remember I've dealt with people all through the years just saying, what's your prayer life like? Well, that's private. That's between me and God. Don't ask. That's personal. Well, no, if, if God is doing a good thing in your life, tell me about it. Be glad to show what God is doing. But a lot of times we keep things private and we say, oh, that's my business. It's none of yours because we know we're not right and we hate for other people to see it. And it doesn't matter what other people see. It matters what God sees, right? Make every effort to confirm your calling and election, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Wouldn't it be wonderful? I stumble all the time. I know I'm preaching really hard this morning. You might think that I have my act together. I, I stumble all the time, but I would love to not stumble. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you love to just wake up and from the moment you wake up in the day to the moment you go to sleep, everything you have done has glorified God and pleased him. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Yeah. And you can just rest in the Lord and go, God, you did such good stuff in my life today and I got to be a part of that. I got to participate in the divine nature. It's wonderful. 
I have days like that sometime, and they're the days that I get it. We co-sleep in the Rickman household. We got all six of us in the bed together, uh, two beds next to each other. We're not that cramped. But uh, on good days where, man, God has just really helped me have a good day, that's when we get in bed and me and Sarah Beth just pray with the kids, and it's wonderful. But I'll have a day where I stumble and we get in bed and I'm saying, everybody go quiet. Let's go to sleep. Because I can't pray because I don't feel good about my day. The thing is, my life is so much better when I just do as I'm told and shut up. But if I'm being honest, I don't have nearly enough of those days. And my job as a Christian, I'm not talking about as a pastor, my job as a Christian is to acknowledge that, to hunger and thirst for that righteousness, to call my brothers and sisters to that. Because if we don't even have that dream of going through a day doing nothing but blessing God, then we have set our sights far lower than Jesus. And that's no good. Where are we? Are we 13? Yeah. I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. You ever know anybody, you're telling them something they've heard before, and they go, I know, I know, I know, I know. He's anticipating that. Oh, I'm on 12. Thank you. for who, Was that you corrected me, Cassie? Thank you so much. I'm on these people all the time. They won't correct me. Okay, verse 12. So, well, it's the same theme here. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. So he's saying, I know I'm telling you things you already know, but the thing is, I've quoted him before. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he says, I need to hear the gospel every day because every day I forget. And if we are these creatures that we lose our sight and our hearing and all these things when left to our own devices, we need to be woken up. We need to be cleared out. We need that, that neti pot poured into our face, you know? I've never used one of those things. They're gross. But I'm just saying we need to be cleared out. Anybody use a neti pot? They're so gross. You pour in one nostril and it, ugh. I don't need that. I just need Jesus. He says, I'm going to remind you as long as I'm in the tent of this body. He used, he, a tent houses a person. He's talking about his physical body being a house for his spirit. He says, while I'm in the tent of this body, I'm going to remind you of these things. Verse 15, and I will make every effort to see that after my departure, he's talking about dying. This, this, book is his, his, this letter is his last will and testament. After my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. So, I mean, that's the thing. That's why mothers nag, right? They want you to remember did I skip something? Okay, well, we went on to 15, so that's fine. Because I, 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 I drove right through 14 again, so we're at 15. And the reason people nag, and yes, it is annoying when people nag, but the thing is you're not showing that you remember. Either that or they really are just a nag. But show them that you remember, and they won't have to remind you, right? Show Jesus that you remember, and whenever you come to his word, you won't feel so bad. You won't be going, ah, I'm getting beat up all the time. When you're doing the things, you're going, yes, I remember that one. Yes, I remember that one. Sometimes Sarah Beth comes into the kitchen. I know she wanted me to do four things. And before she starts, did you, did you, I just say, I just did the thing. And I did this other thing. And look, I did this too. And she'll go, oh, I'm so happy with you. <laughs> and it's so much better than if she's going, did you do the thing? Well, I was going to do that. But then, you know, so it's so much better when you're with your Lord just saying, yes, I, Jesus, I'm so happy I did the thing. And then I did this other thing. And it's all for you, Jesus. You did that through me, really. It's wonderful to go through life that way. Verse 16, for we, uh, we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. This last section that we're going to be in is going to be talking about the trustworthiness of the Bible. 
one of the things that people throughout history have said about the Bible is these are cleverly devised myths. You know, you don't believe in Zeus and Aphrodite and Apollo and all these. These were metaphors to help an ancient culture reckon with the hard things in life. Same thing with the God of the Bible. It's all just ancient men coming up with their wisdom. It's not literal history. It's not literal truth. Peter's already anticipating that, and he's saying, these are not cleverly devised myths. Fine, there might be some symbolism here, but he says, we're in verse 16, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. An eyewitness is someone who saw it literally. He's saying, I literally saw the majesty of God. Well, when did you see that? Verse 17, he, he's talking about Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were on the sacred mountain. Now, if you've read the Gospels, you know what story he's talking about. He's talking about the transfiguration. Peter and a couple other disciples were up on this mountain with him, and all of a sudden there's clouds everywhere. Jesus' appearance changes. He's luminescing. He's bright as light. And all of a sudden Elijah and Moses are there. These are guys that God had taken up before, and he is talking with them, and they hear God's voice out of the clouds saying, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Peter's saying, I was there I saw God's glory. I heard God's voice. This is not a metaphor. This is history. Verse 19. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. He's talking about the whole Old Testament, and you can infer the New Testament onto that. It is completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Morning star is a code name for Jesus. It's in Revelation chapter 20. He's, he's saying that same thing about God. We are in darkness. Uh, all our senses, uh, something in sight, lies in di- deepest darkness shrouded. We were singing that hymn. We're all born in darkness. It's Christ who is our light that sends the beams of pure truth into our... That's what he's talking about here. Above all, you must understand, above all means above all. This is important. You must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. He's saying, you know, a lot of people will look at the Scriptures and say, oh, it's a product of its time. These were ancient men with their own worldview and bigotries and biases, and they encoded that here, and we have to filter that stuff out and find the truth about God. That is an unfaithful way to be in relationship with the Bible. He's saying... These prophets did not get to make editorial choices. God used them. They were passive recipients of the message. We don't get to filter through and go, okay, this is true. This is only sort of true. This isn't true at all. You don't have your little buckets you put them into. You have, this is the word of God. That's it. Verse 21, for prophecy never had an origin in human will. So the Bible is called revealed knowledge, right? It's revealed by God. We don't have special access to it. People who receive messages from God are called prophets. People who are able to discern God's voice and give it to the people are called prophets. Every single author of the Bible was a prophet. They received God's message. They wrote it down. He's saying prophecy, these messages given to individuals, has never had its origin in human will. You cannot make yourself a prophet. 
There's no spell or incantation you can do. There's no meditation practice you can do. God just selects you and makes you a prophet. He gives you his message. You don't get to edit it or augment it. Otherwise, you're not a prophet. You're a prophet of Baal. You're evil. Prophecy never had its origin in human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as though they were carried along. Not as though, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The, the place we need to end on on that today is the Bible is entirely reliable. And I don't really care for the people, the postmodernists going through and saying, well, how do you reconcile these two? It's an obvious contrast. As soon as you're making the Bible fight against itself, I'm done with you. I have no patience for that. It's God's holy word. Your job is not to try and find how it doesn't fit. Your job is to apply how it does fit. And if you can't see it, that's because you, like me, are a stupid human. Lean not on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord. That's the nature of faith. We who have faith are people who have given up on our own reasoning, our own feelings, and we have decided to trust in Christ instead. And how do you know Christ? Through his holy word. Is there any way to know who Christ is without this? No. If you know of a Jesus that is not in here, you have made up another Savior with the same name. We have to be absolutely clear. This is what's caused all the misery in the United Methodist Church. Is we have some who want to treat this as a metaphor, and we have others who want to treat this as God's holy word, and the two paths do not fit together. They are at odds. They don't fit together. They cause resentment and even bitter hatred. The church, if any place, I mean, I'm fine if people outside of the church look at this as a metaphor, whatever. But when people inside of the church choose not to see this as God's revealed word, we're in trouble. May it never be the case with this church. Amen.